You're listening to MHD Off the Record South LA Highlights, where I, Siobhan Taylor, speak with local organizations, small businesses, and individuals doing amazing work in South LA. Here, we uplift and highlight their work while keeping you informed of the resources available in our community. On this episode, we speak with Gerald Garth, the executive director of the Ahmad Institute. Ahmad, which stands for Arming Minorities Against Addiction and Disease, facilitates personalized individual access to programs and services that foster safe and supportive healthy environments for people to live, learn, and develop to their fullest potential. Gerald has led health equity work for over 10 years, previously serving as Chief Operations Officer of Ahmad and Manager of Prevention and Care with the Black AIDS Institute. He most recently served as the first Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for the Los Angeles LGBT Center. He serves as co-chair of the Black Caucus of the Los Angeles Commission on HIV and is also the president of LA Pride, the first Black man to hold that position. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Gerald Garth. Yes, so glad to be here. Thank you. Man, we're glad to have you here. Yes. Let's talk about the Ahmad Institute. Um, I was very excited to see you at our Reimagine event yes. where you guys were one of our grant recipients of the CD8 Community Grant. Yes, so excited. So thank you again. And that's where I actually first learned about your organization, mm-hmm. the Ahmad Institute, which stands for Arming Minorities Against Addiction and Disease. So tell us a little bit about that organization, how it was founded, and some background. Sure. So Ahmad, as you mentioned, Arming Minorities Against Addiction and Disease, will actually be celebrating our 10-year anniversary next year. So um, have been uh, around for 10 years, but really was founded um, as a recovery organization. So our founder, Dr. Carl Hyshaw, saw specifically the need for intersectional care as related to uh, recovery uh, in South L.A. specifically. Uh, but then when looking at recovery needs, um, you're forced to look at all the other opportunities for needs. And so the programs really expanded to look at housing and mental health and um, job readiness and a host of other services and programs. So um, we've been able to really grow and expand our programs um, in these years, but being founded as a recovery organization. What is intersectional care? That's a great question. So intersectional care really looks at how do providers bring uh, points of care to individuals and community as it relates to the whole person. So, for example, in the same um, analogy we gave, if an individual is um, battling with addiction or a substance and recovery use, um, there are other elements in his or her or their life that also might need attention as well. So when we look at recovery and even uh, recovery prevention, looking at how housed and stably housed is an individual. And then when we look at sustaining housing, we have to look at job readiness and job sustainability. And when we look at job sustainability, we also have to look at one's mental health. And so when we look at intersectional care, we have to look at sort of all the pieces that work together to sustain uh, and ensure whole person care for an individual. It's interesting that you say that because one of our other grant recipients was Mm -hmm. the Right Way Foundation. Mm -hmm. And we interviewed uh, Franco Vega, the founder and CEO of that organization. And he mentioned that his organization started off as an employment organization Mm -hmm. for, for transition age youth. And in that, he's, they realized that, yeah, we started off as a job organization, but again, they much like how you guys started, they realized there were other needs involved. Sure. So they realized, well, we got to focus on housing. Mm-hmm. We have to also get some access to mental health services. It can't just be about jobs. Absolutely. In fact, the jobs had to be secondary yeah. to the other needs. Down the list, had. yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like this is similar. You're realizing that, wait, it's not just about addiction and disease because these come with other 
things such as other needs being met. Absolutely. And when you look at it, um, providers uh, certainly should be looking at care through a client-centered approach. You know, that being um, when we look at providing services and programs for folks, um, how does this one point of service fit into a person's whole life? And I think for quite some time, care provision has happened um, and what folks say in a silo. And so if I'm a recovery agency, I only look at the recovery support elements and nothing else. Or if I'm an employing agency, I only look at employment and nothing else. But as you mentioned, and as we agree, it's almost impossible to look at a whole person uh, to provide only one point of service without looking at how that interfaces with other points. Let's let's even expand that more because I think when people think of addiction, they only mm-hmm. think of treatment in mm-hmm. one way, mm-hmm. right? In fact, they only think of treatment. Mm-hmm. We don't even think about the fact that, well, they got here because of something else as well, Absolutely. Right? Um, now we know with, well, at least many people who are studying this know that addiction is often linked with something like a trauma, mm-hmm. right? Right. And addiction is a disease. And it is a disease. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these, we know uh, there's trauma. There's also mm-hmm. uh, intergenerational situations, mm-hmm. right? Predisposition. Um, predisposition. Uh-huh. We So we, we knowing that there's also self-medication mm-hmm. from mental health issues. But people often aren't informed on these things. Mm-hmm. So another thing that I find impressive is you guys also have an education yes. that comes with a lot of the work that you do. Mm-hmm. Why is education and um a big part of your work as well. Sure. And you actually spoke to it really well already. So much of where we have seen what we see as it relates to care and more specifically uh, addiction is around uh, undereducation or miseducation. You know, folks have bits and pieces or they have no little, you know, I heard this or I read this somewhere, but don't know whether somewhere <laughs> is. So that undereducation and addressing miseducation and misinformation and stigma um, is a major part of how we Um, stem the tide on uh, addiction and recovery. Um, One thing that I speak to often in the work that um, I do and I'm graced to lead is um, uh, addiction prevention and recovery prevention. A lot of times when we're moving into spaces, a lot of times care and services only come when a person is sort of consumed with an addiction or a substance and recovery needs. And so when we're looking at things like housing, like sustainable job placement, like a healthy sense of community, those in and of themselves are addiction prevention. Because a lot of times people find themselves in a, a number of spaces because they needed something or they were trying to fill a void or like you mentioned, address a trauma. But when we can point people to healthy tools and teach them and give them ways to use those tools, we are in that work doing addiction recovery support. You connected two things that made me so happy right yes. now, education and community, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. if our community is educated, we can reduce those stigmas mm-hmm. and we can also create more prevention. Absolutely. I love that because yeah. when we have prevention, when we can reduce the fact, we can reduce the amount of you know services that are needed. That's true. And then so much of that comes with not only education around substances and drugs, but just how to access support, how to access care, how to address stigma and miseducation. I mean, I see regularly um, so much of the work that we're doing in community. People will ask, have you ever heard of such and such? Or, you know, or, or, you know, somebody told me about this. Having folks who are informed and educated and empowered in that information address the stigma in a way that many of the most you know, top tier doctors or educators or researchers could not do when our community uh, is educated and empowered in that. 
Yes. And we can be support systems for each other. Certainly. Yeah. There's so much power. I say this all together, all, all the time is that we're stronger together and that none of us have to do everything if all of us do something. That is amazing. Yes. And I'm guessing that all of your staff is sort of um, educated and immersed in this sort of ideology. Yeah. Our staff is amazing. We have such a dynamic team that I'm so excited to work with. Um, and so much of our work is really centered in peer-led, strength-based approaches. So many of our team um, are living examples of what it is to be uh, empowered and to be, what I say, in the driver's seat of their own story and experience. So our team certainly leads with not only um, education and information, but a level of uh, lived experience that adds so much value. Uh, and so um, that also, as a part of our model, is something that we're really excited about. Your organization also has a particular focus on LGBTQ plus people of color. What are the benefits for individuals who seek focused care and services and why is this important? That's a great question. And so one thing about Ahmad is that we are unapologetically black. And so so much of our approaches really looks at centering and affirming the culture um, in a very um unique and unapologetic way. But we also look at the intersection of the LGBTQ plus experience, knowing that um, those communities have a very unique intersection of what not only their uh, experiences look like, but their needs also. And so when we look at building programs and services and even activities, um, looking at that um, unique intersection in a really um, not only unapologetic, but affirming and celebratory way adds a lot of value. When we look at the data and how Black LGBTQ people are shouldering the burden of racism, but then also homophobia, transphobia, and misogyny in these very sort of uh, exacerbated ways, we as providers have to look at how we responding uniquely to um, those communities. And so um, we're really excited at Ahmad to where our programs aren't exclusively LGBTQ+, but we do have a unique uh, and unapologetic approach to providing and designing programs with and for LGBTQ plus people. And let's 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 be honest and let's mm -hmm. be let's be yeah. completely straightforward about it. Many times people seek services in other spaces. Mm -hmm even in spaces that are black, mm -hmm. even in spaces that are brown, mm -hmm. right? And they get into these spaces and they're facing that transphobia. Mm -hmm. They're facing that homophobia mm -hmm. because we're dealing with spaces that have not been educated, mm -hmm. that are miseducated or just homophobic and transphobic. Right. <laughs> and they're not getting the care and the services that they need. Mm -hmm. And it's great that you have a space like the Ahmad Institute where, these, where people can actually get the healing and the resources that they need. That's great. Thank you for that. And we certainly agree. And one thing that is also just, you know, worth noting is like you mentioned, historically, um, so many communities who are at those intersectional identities have been forced to pick which parts of themselves to bring into the world and which parts of themselves to celebrate. So if I'm black and gay, I can be, you know, black in my black spaces, but kind of tone down my, the, you know, the gay version of myself. Or often if I'm in white gay spaces, I can't bring the black celebratory version of myself. But we do not live in isolated silos of, of ourselves in that way. And so having spaces, not only that are designed to um, um, invite folks to bring all of themselves, but to build a sense of community and recognizing that we are all a part of this broad um, and um, dynamic and diverse um, community to where we all exist and we have all historically exist. There might have been 
less opportunities or invitations for us to show up in the world proudly, but we have always been here. And I think creating these spaces to where we can see each other as a part of a community, um, not only, you know, addresses the isms and the stigma, but just creates a sense of humanity um, as we share a space that I think we need now like never before. I love that. And mm. also, and I like how you said you go to some spaces you can only share part of yourself or mm. or celebrate one part of yourself mm-hmm. or even have certain parts of you identified with, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or those needs being identified with. Sure. And it makes me think of a, I remember I had a neighbor and it was, I was meeting him for the first time, funny enough. Um, and he was Mexican-American. He worked for an LGBTQ plus organization and it was predominantly white. Mm-hmm. And he was having, a, he was, we were, we were just talking. He's sharing all this on our first conversation. <laughs> he needed that. And um, he really did. Yeah, right. And I tend to have this impact on people yes. anyway, where they start sharing all their yes. stress and frustrations. <laughs> and he just starts unloading on me all these things that he was stressed out about with this organization, this activist organization he was a part of. He was really stressed out, was an activist, LGBTQ plus organization. And he was looking for a space mm. where he could be, um, himself and really talk about the issues that were important to him. And he was looking for an organization that was black and Latino. And um, so I think that's part of the reason why he was sharing it with me. And he knew I was working in that and I was doing community organizing at the mm-hmm. time. And he was frustrated because at the time they were working on the issues around um, gay marriage. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was upset because he's like, I mean, I think it's an important issue and I get it, but that's not really what I'm, really passionate about. Mm -hmm. He said, because they keep arguing about how you want to see your loved one in the hospital. And I get that's their focus, but my people ain't even got insurance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that was his, Mm -hmm. he was, he was more upset about that. And he was talking about, he was upset saying, our people don't even have insurance. Our people are poor. Our people are, Mm -hmm. don't even have the things that, the basic needs. And they're talking about this issue. He says, I support it. I'm all about it. But when I bring up these other issues, because it's not these, it's not their experience. It's not their experience. Mm -hmm. They couldn't really identify. Mm-hmm. When he told me that, it was when I realized that the experiences that people of color, black people are having and Latino people are having as LGBTQ plus people is not the same as these white people on the West Side. Mm-hmm. Because we were in South Central, you know, these people in the West Side were having. Right. Even though he felt like, yeah, we identify in this area, but when it came to their material needs, right. it was vastly different. Vastly different. In your work, do you see the same thing? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I personally exceptionally mindful of how I navigate and even encourage my team to navigate a number of our advocacy spaces, because that example you gave is so real to so many people in the sense of when we look at the grand scheme of needs of certain communities, you know, looking at those unique intersections make and play a major role in how we even are able to show up in decision-making spaces. So when we look at the unique needs, again, of this example that you gave of your you know, Mexican-American neighbor, there are uh, elements that are unique to um, Latino and Latinx communities that look very different from white communities or even black communities. When we look at yes. elements around undocumented status and English as a second language and all these elements that, while are important, through experience alone, translate very differently. And so, so when you talk about our history as enslaved people yes. in this country, right? And so I'm very exceptionally mindful when we look at our shared efforts as people of color. Because as black people, as black Americans, we have a very unique uh, experience, thus a very unique 
need for strategies, approaches, and responses. And so that does not negate any other space or any other communities or sub-communities or even allies. But when we look at what do we need, how do we need it, and how are we centering Black folks as the experts of their own experience to respond to what they need, um, that as a uh, uh, an organizing approach needs to be paramount because Black people, we know what we need. We're experiencing it every day. And a lot of times, too, because of the deprioritizing of black needs, we find ourselves in communal spaces where we're also fighting doubly to be heard in uh, an either space. And what's interesting is you guys are a direct service organization, mm -hmm. but you guys also provide education. You guys are low key organizers. We are. And you, know, just, <laughs> and you don't often see that. That's yeah, why I'm pointing that out. Yeah. And I mean, just, you know, about me and my heart, I've had a heart of organizing and have been in that space personally for Many years. And so I think it just kind of shows up and I think invites the team to do that as well. And so even when we look at it from a policy space and a community partner space and other CBO space, even faith institutions, all these different spaces, um, I think is really important. And I say this often, it, um, it invites other partners in to uh, be a part of the movement as well. I think historically, there's been very limited spaces in which um, certain communities or individuals have felt like they've been able to show up. So showing up sort of as an organizer invites us all. I think that's super fascinating and super interesting because often, at least in my experience, because I've worked in direct services mm -hmm. for many years, mm -hmm. I was pretty much raised a community organizer. Mm -hmm. And I've also worked in organizing. And you know, as well as I know, there's often conflict mm -hmm. between those two entities. <laughs> right. Very vocal and vi visible conflict, too. And I've worked in spaces where they've had to work together and they've very much had conflict mm -hmm. because people who work in direct services kind of see themselves like we're on the ground. Mm -hmm. We doing the work face to face, mm -hmm. you know, so we're the most important. Mm -hmm. And then you have people who work as organizers who work in policy and mm -hmm. advocacy who feel like, look, we got to get this work done. The policy isn't there. Mm -hmm. Ain't none of this happening. Mm -hmm. Right. But at this, but you, people like you and I, we see both sides. Mm -hmm. We see that if we got to work upstream and downstream mm -hmm. and not everybody sees it that way. Yeah. So I think it's super fascinating and super dope that as a direct service organization, you also see the value in the organizing. Piece. Absolutely. And I think that's a great analogy, even comparing to, again, the intersectional approach yes. to outcomes. So that, you <laughs> yes. know, that was a great example. Like there's the service providers, there's the policy informers, but then there's value in coming together or finding what I say, that sweet spot in the middle that includes us all. Absolutely. See, yeah. I, 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 I knew we got you in here. It's going to be something. It's going to be something. I know you came here with your Canadian suit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> got my little blue on. Y'all can't see me. He's wearing full denim. Yeah, He's looking fly with his gold. Got a, man, listen, he came I here ready. It, yes. Um, I just I just really love the work that you guys do. I love that you take a holistic and intersectional approach. I love that you have um, great programs. Let's talk a little bit about the programs Certainly. that you have, um, which is a lot. I went to <laughs> go team. <laughs> listen, I went to your website and I was like, let me get make it. Let me just really parse through the programs that you have. And that was quite a task mm. because you have a lot of programs yes. and you touch on a lot of groups. You have HIV education and empowerment. You have community education. That's a category in itself. It certainly is. Mind you, there's education multiple times throughout <laughs> this program list. Um, you have Project Roar. And I want you to talk about that. Um, something called Reclaiming Innocence, um, House of Resiliency. Let's talk about some of these programs that yeah, you have. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And again, shout out to the team, the Ahmad Squad is what we affectionately call I them. I love that. Yes. 
But yeah, so many great programs. So um, our HIV um, empowerment and education programs are really centered at looking at um, not only lifting uh, and empowering through education, but connecting folks to care and services, but also using what's called um, community-based participatory research. So that looks at engaging individuals who represent those communities in a way that is collaborative and co-creating to respond to specifically the needs of those communities. So within our um, HIV education uh, and empowerment program or the Hive, um, we have um, a number of cohorts that looks at specific subcommunities. So we have one specific to women of color, one for South L.A., one for young gay and bisexual men. Uh, one for East LA. So this really broad set of cohorts that look very specifically to communities. And we know, like I've said, uh, and I certainly uh, uh, prescribe to is that we're the experts of our own experience. So we're building these programs, not only for these communities, but with these communities and what I say, the driver's seat. Uh, and also uh, HIV testing, you know, that's a major part of our work. And, you know, black communities, specifically black and Latino communities are still disproportionately impacted by HIV. Um, and so really elevating uh, work in that space. We have a really robust housing portfolio. So uh, a number of properties. So we're able to actually help place people into housing. Um, excitedly so we have housing navigation services, which is actually able to help people, you know, work through some of the challenges as it relates to housing. So that could be sustainability through job readiness and job placement. It could be through um, knowing your rights and tenant engagement. It could be um, how to help manage your funds. So those types of navigation pieces. And then we also have a housing subsidy program. So folks who might need financial support, we're able to provide a, a host of supports in that way um, in a number of different ways. So dynamic housing team, um, we have, um, like you mentioned, community education. So a really specific focus on youth and young adults. So we have a really uh, rich and growing youth youth development and diversion division, a lot of development, uh, but that looks very specifically at empowering, educating, and what I call power building uh, among uh, young people, uh, and not only those young people, but their parents and caregivers also. So really looking at, which is very important to me as a, an individual, and just from my own experience, what I call um, a village approach, knowing <laughs> that it. we are all are part of this village. We all have a role. And how do we invite us all to be a part of the solution? So working um, across uh, generations and intergenerationally um, to, to move the work as it relates to, to our communities. Um, we also have um, a really rich and robust um, outreach and community engagement. So we have lots of events and activities and things that really center community and build um, build community among um among our geographies. You also have behavioral health programs. Certainly, a really rich and dynamic behavioral health team. So a team of therapists and counselors who are able to provide mental, emotional, and behavioral health to a number of sub-communities. So um, looking specifically in one project at youth and young adults again, one for formerly incarcerated and justice-involved individuals, um, individuals who have experienced uh, substance uh, recovery needs support, um, and then just overall support. You know, I think, again, now more than ever, we're starting to see the value of behavioral health and mental health support. Uh, and so are able to provide um, services in so many different uh, ways and modalities. We have a team, again, that um, represents the community uh, in all different ways. And so I um, certainly encourage folks to take a look at that team as well. 
Man. Yes. How do y'all get it all done? You know, we look up and it's happening. (laughs) (laughs) I ask myself that regularly. But, I mean, it is, again, a village. It's a great team of committed um, uh, team members who are bringing the best of themselves to make our communities better. I love it. And I love that you have a team that also has lived experience. Yes. Which is part of the empowerment approach. It certainly is. And a number of our team members are success stories in their own way of being uh, program participants at some point or, you know, occupants of one of our properties or coming through one of our programs. And so we certainly see great value in, again, centering those individuals as experts, not just sort of accessories, but like joining us as a part of decision making and program development um, in a way that's really um, centering them as co-creators. I love that. And Mm -hmm. the reason why is exactly what you just said, Mm -hmm. because they're not just accessories. Mm -hmm. You know how people have like the little testimonies? Yes. Come on in. (laughs) Tell us about you. Tell us us how good we did with you. Yeah. Right. You know, (laughs) put them in the front room. Uh Right. Yeah. We have a funder coming in. Yeah. But really, you have people who are there who are experts Mm -hmm. and they are able to help guide and direct what the program needs 100%. are because they understand and have been uh, recipients and yes. yeah, experienced those and programs. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So they know exactly what needs to happen and mm-hmm. how they can happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such an important aspect of doing community work mm-hmm. in any way, whether it's direct service or if it's organizing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's beautiful and it's Thank empowering you. because if that way, if I can see that you've done it and you've been through it, I go, okay, I know what this looks like right. as I'm going through this. Certainly. And we know, I mean, marketing professionals and all the communications professionals, word of mouth is still the biggest, if not one of the biggest, certainly in the number. Oh, they know. Yeah. It's, and so if you can be mm-hmm. in a position to where you can say, let me tell you about my own experience, that goes so far. Absolutely. Yeah. So. You guys uh, were one of our CDA community-based organization grant recipients. Yes, thank you again. (laughs) How has that grant been helpful to the people that you serve in your organization? Sure. So, again, thank you so much to CDA and the councilman and his team. Um, So, we're actually able to use those support dollars to further the work of our House of Resiliency. So, the House of Resiliency is a, a, a property that's designed to provide housing and services and programs to Um, young gay and bisexual men ages 18 to about 29 um, in the heart of the district. Uh, And so not only are we able to support the, the, the operations of the house, you know, through providing Things like food and linens and toiletries, you know, to the to occupants, but also um, supporting and expanding on our services. And so, like we mentioned, so much of what is so valuable is that we're able to align individuals to um, job readiness, job placement. Um, as part of our navigation team, our team works uh, to build individualized case plans. So for some folks that might be finishing high school, for some it might be going to trade school, for some it might be going back to college, for some it might be learning a skill, but building these individualized care plans that are really centered in, again, the whole person approach, but a sustainable approach too. So we're able to uh, um, support these young folks as they are building their care plans, but also as they're moving out into the world and able to build, uh, uh, to sustain themselves in a really empowering way. And so Really looking at, again, um, centering our efforts in um, a a lens of humanity. You know, uh, it's arguably one of the most dehumanizing moments to be when you're, you know, in a place of needing help to that degree. And so we really do purpose ourselves to make sure that that humanity piece leads what we do. Um, But then also really creating, again, a sense of community, you know, for a lot of our participants, many of them have 
no family or have been disengaged from their family or have found themselves in some of these really, um, you know, unfortunate situations because of being disconnected from family. So we recognize that that sense of family and community and belonging for many folks have been pretty traumatically torn away. Uh, and so we create these moments and opportunities for folks to rebuild, repair and reconcile in that space through these programs and events and activities that are really just um, elevating um, our, our communities in a very uh, celebratory way. So through these support dollars, we're able to not only um, grow and sustain the house and to support more individuals uh, on their journey to uh, sustainable housing, but also to create a sense of empowerment and a belonging for many of them in a way in which they have never really had. That yes. is beautiful. And I'm so glad that this is something we were able to help with yes. and support and be a part and of. And we're so grateful. Yes. On behalf of the entire team and our participants, we're, we're very, very grateful. I'm 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 just glad to hear that. Yes. Before we go, I just want to little know a little bit about what got you involved in this. Oh, we should have started with that. <laughs> I, I know, know, but I, I still want to know. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So I've had a pretty non-traditional journey of my own, and so. Oh, that's why you said we should have started. With that. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm, I'm gonna give you the the abridged version, the trailer, get you there real quick. But yeah, so um, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and I moved to. Los Angeles uh, 10 years ago as an actor, an actor and a writer. Like everybody. As did everybody <laughs> or many of us. And I do still write, but I recognize that my journey in this space has evolved. And I don't call myself an actor. I call myself a storyteller because uh, I do recognize the value and power of storytelling. And so uh, my journey is not traditional uh, in that way, but still at the core of me recognizing the power of storytelling. But before that, I actually studied accounting and worked as a corporate accountant for years and then realized this ain't really it for me. <laughs> what do I do now? And so I had this kind of career pivot actually over 10 years ago where I was really committed to bringing my skills and strengths into work that was really aligned with my values. And so got into the um, nonprofit space and worked with a number of nonprofits gratefully uh, so over the years and really just sort of, you know, built my muscle in this space. I kind of came in not quite knowing. I knew it was something, didn't quite know what. And so as a writer, kind of started in the space of communications and then from communications into um, grant writing and from grant writing to fund development and from fund development to programs development and then have kind of zigzagged my way up the, the kind of the chain um, to now um, leading uh, this amazing organization. And um Along the way, I've been able to pull so many great resources and skills and relationships that have informed sort of this journey. So that's like the 90 second version, but You're really right. grateful. Yeah, I definitely should have asked that. <laughs> right. I see how I messed that one up. Oh, man, you know, that, just, that just means I can come back. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> right. Absolutely. But I definitely thank you so much absolutely. for joining us as our South LA highlight. And I learned so much even just sitting here with you all the different ways that we can, you know, really support our community and especially when it comes to things like addiction, mm -hmm. because we, like I said, we really only know one way mm -hmm. to talk about recovery, to talk mm -hmm. about supporting our communities when it comes to treatment. Right. Absolutely. We don't even think about things like prevention through empowerment, yes. through getting basic needs met, through building community mm -hmm. or rebuilding community. Absolutely. Right? I'm a big proponent of community and connection mm -hmm. as a way to prevent or a way to heal from trauma and as a way to prevent disease, as a way to prevent 
passing on that mm-hmm, trauma, mm-hmm. right? And it sounds like that's exactly what you guys do at the Ahmad Institute, right? Yes, that's beautiful. And thank you for that. And we agree. And we're stronger together. So thank you. Thank you. And please tell us, what are some ways that we can support and what are some upcoming events that you have? Absolutely. Thank you again. I'm so excited. So we have a number of events coming up. We have uh, Summit of Our Tribes, which is this our second annual conference. It's a two-day conference on June 29th and 30th. It's centered around looking at how do we as a community um, come together to really address and respond to the needs of our communities um, at, at large. And again, that's June 29th and 30th. Um, we have our Um, Juneteenth Golf Classic coming up. This is our first year for uh, having this dynamic fundraiser. This is a chance for us to, uh, or for folks to not only um, come out to golf, but to support. Uh, We also have an opportunity for folks to support um, uh, our youth and young golfers. So that's our exciting experience also. And we'll be having a number of other programs throughout the year that folks can find at our website at www.amad.org. Thank you so much. This information will be in the show notes. If you want more information on how you can get involved and find ways to even have some programs, maybe you need some referrals, all that yes. information will be in the show notes. Absolutely. We look forward to it. I hope to see you around in the community because I, I know I will. You I'm know, like, we organize and I get together. So we'll be shoulder <laughs> to shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gerald Garth. And I appreciate you and the Amada Institute for all the work that you're doing. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to MHD Off The Record. And special thank you to Felicia, the poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Leimert Park. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.